0: My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley, as today we go into Genesis 25 through 26. But before that, I do want to say thank you um, to everyone who reached out after the last episode. Um, uh, I appreciate everything you guys had to say, like... uh, I I have not had a single person tell me that uh I was wrong, that uh that that's not how things should have been handled, but so I'm I'm very grateful for that at the same time, you know, just just making sure that hey, I'm not around a bunch of, you know, yes men are just gonna say, Yeah, you're right because you said it. You know, it's like no like here's XYZ, why you're right. Um to feel this way. So for those of you worrying about me, I I am still a little down. I'm not nearly as down as I was last week. It's, it's picked up a bit since then. Um, I I got to go, uh, check out a new church, which of course, of course, the first message when I go back there is about marriage. So uh, I, I did my best not to make that like, okay, this is why I'm never coming back. I so, no, I'm coming back this next Sunday. I'm even going to get checked out their Sunday schools and stuff like that. I felt it was a very nice sermon delivered by a guest speaker too. So I didn't feel like I got the full experience from that amount uh, of visiting. So I'm checking them out again, seeing if that's where I'm going to end up church-wise here. Um, so I, there, I am improving. I do feel better. And once again, I am extremely grateful to everyone who who has reached out and asked me how I'm doing and what they can be praying about for me. So, I mean, you guys are the best. I really appreciate all that. So uh, without any further ado, we're going to head into Genesis today, going through 25 through 26, starting in uh, chapter 25, verses 1 through 6. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son, Isaac, eastward to the east country. Abraham, now that his son has gotten married, engages in a relationship with Keturah around the same time. Um, We're not exactly sure who she is. Like She kind of just shows up. So uh, there's some speculation about who she is. We'll get to a bit. And, you know, we're not also not told about whether or not this is something that Abraham consulted God about or if God approved of this. But we do see that God does bless the union with multiple children. And then not just that, but with multiple descendants that will become some of the nations that inhabited that area. So, uh, it seems like he does have God's approval to do such a thing, like Sarah is dead. Um, he can move on in that manner if he so chooses. Um, that, As far as his marital status is concerned from the Hebrew perspective, in First Chronicles one thirty-two, we like explicitly told that Keturah was not Abraham's legal wife in the same way that Sarah was, but was a concubine, much like Hagar had been. Now, it, you see it explicitly says wife there. Well, one of the things they're saying in, in the Middle Eastern culture at the time, kind of as far as uh, very widespread around this region, is that you could call your concubine a wife because, I mean, for all intents and purposes, she is. But typically, there would only be one, maybe two top wives in that scenario. So, like, they are the wife. The others are wives in that sense and that you are having relations with them, but they're not as important as the first one. So once again, our modern sensibilities are lots of red flags showing up there, but it's the culture at the time. It's how it was. We don't have to like it. So while, and it is still possible that she did become a legal wife after this, or maybe just maintain the concubine status. It's all over the place. What it could be. uh, The point being is that from this union, Multiple other nations are born due to the promise, uh, even beyond the covenantal promises that God made with Abraham. He has made beyond what is supposed to happen. It's just supposed to be Israel. But through Ishmael, we have a lot of uh, the Ishmaelites and uh, other Arabian tribes, but also here. We see Midian, one of the sons, would become the progenitor of the Midianites, who along the way would cause many problems for the Israelites hundreds of years from now, while also providing worthwhile men and women like Jethro and Zipporah. So you get the good, you get the bad. And the other sons and their descendants uh, seem to have settled in Arabia. Uh, Some have even speculated that Sheba here becomes the namesake of the Sheba from which the Queen of Sheba originates. We're not entirely sure it could easily be something else, but right here and now, that's what we see is that God has blessed these children who were not part of the plan he told Abraham, not to say they were never part of God's plan to be born or for what God does to them later on to happen, but they weren't like the main focus. So even though they're not part of the plan, they're still part of the plan and God is choosing to enrich their lives anyways. But despite their ties to him, these children were not the promised line that God had told Abraham he would be the head of. Isaac was this child, and Abraham favored him over his other brothers, not because the brothers were despised, not because they were lesser, but because through Isaac, God's plans would be enacted in the world. Abraham did not forsake his other children, and he offered them wealth and resources so that they could prosper away from the land where Isaac's descendants were supposed to rule. You may think, oh, it's Callous that he sent a boy. He said, no, like this land here is Isaac's birthright. It is something that's supposed to go to him and his descendants. So to have these other sons here, well, there's going to be quarreling over who gets what. So the smart thing to do, the loving thing to do is to send them away so they can find their fortune elsewhere, which is what they do. And from there, we we'll go from seven to eighteen. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the son of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Napish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael and their names. And these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen for 175 years and 13 chapters of a book that has 50 chapters in it, which once again, that's kind of like a more modern thing. This was not in the original Hebrew. These are not split off in that way. This is how we look at it. But still, that's quite the large chunk of this book. Abraham has been our main protagonist for the story God chose to tell that would cause the whole world to prosper. Now, for those of us who came to faith and are not Jews, we are, in fact, Gentiles. Abraham is our spiritual father. We owe him a lot, just in the same way to the Israelites, owe him a lot. God's promise of many descendants was meant both literally through his chosen people, Israel, and through those who have given our hearts to Jesus, who would have never existed in this form that we see him as we have here, without God's love for the Jewish people. Abraham has shown himself to be a multifaceted man capable of great good and great evil, but ultimately he proved himself to be God's man through and through, and without his faith, we would not be here today. So it's kind of that point of, you know, Reading through a story, it's like, man, I love this character. I love seeing what they're going through and their struggles. And then they die, and the torch is passed on to someone else. And right now, it the torch is passed from Abraham to Isaac. And we've seen Abraham struggle. We've seen him move through life. We've seen him. (laughs) We've seen him lie about who his wife is. We've seen him uh, bless the people around him. And love on them, we've seen him not handle his marriage as well as he should have, but at the same time rejoicing when he does have his sons. He loving on them, loving on Ishmael, loving on Isaac. And at the same time, being willing to sacrifice Isaac as God has commanded for him, just so he could be the man God sees him as he should be. And then when God delivers him from having to make that choice, he praises God. We see Abraham grow immensely here. He's a flawed man, just like the rest of us. But we need to take heart. 175 years, and this man was faithful. This man sought after God. And like I said before, we would not be where we are right now without him, without his faithfulness in serving God. So let's, let us look at the legacy of Abraham's decision to have children outside of the one promised to him. Now, uh, unless I'm forgetting something, God hasn't explicitly forbidden this. And in fact, it seems to have been part of his plans for these other nations to be created from Abraham's line. Ishmael, the firstborn son, has a legacy that led to the creation of a large nomadic Arabian tribe that, like his fellow non-promised brothers, would cause great harm and great good to the Israelites. But this doesn't happen if God doesn't watch over them and offer them protection and prosperity, even though they weren't the children prom- God promised to Abraham. Just because they weren't the promised children didn't mean God didn't care about them. He said, like, what, what are they doing down there? I was like, oh my gosh, he has a kid now. It's like, no, he knew it was going to happen. He allowed it to happen and he didn't punish him for it. Instead, they were able to be blessed and prosper under God's guidance. And perhaps for some time, you know, given that they grew up in a household that was with a man seeking after God, these children did the same and tried to uh, have their sons teach their sons and so on and so forth. And maybe for a time they maintained their devotion to God as they created these new tribes elsewhere. But as we will see in the rest of the biblical narrative, this didn't remain. And they soon found themselves fighting against their family, the Israelites, hundreds of years later. The Ishmaelites will attack Israel, the Midianites will attack Israel. Like it's gonna happen. And when we get to Jacob and Esau, the Edomites are gonna do it too. But what makes them different than Isaac is that God maintained a relationship with them, even in midst of, of apostasy. No matter just read it, just read through first and second Kings. And if that doesn't prove to you that God, you know, loves the people of Israel as his chosen people above any other people group in the world, I don't know what else does. I mean, forget, forget judges, forget the grumblings in the Pentateuch. Like, I mean, sure, those are also things you go, man, why why are you dealing with them, God? But shh, first and second Kings read through those. We'll get to them forever from now. But it shows that God didn't do this to the Egyptians. God didn't do this to the Ishmaelites. He didn't do it to the Midianites. He didn't do it to the Greeks. He didn't do it to the Cherokee. He did it to the Israelites, remaining faithful to him despite when they were never faithful to him. And that's something we should also take immense joy in. But we also need to move on to uh, verses 19 through 28. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, which means hairy. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. You know, he who takes by the heel. Isaac was 60 years old when, he, when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he hated his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. A lot here. So we start first with Rebekah, who, like Sarah, was barren for a time. This is a continuing device that God utilizes in the Bible to show his control over nature and to show us how we should wrestle with that idea, and I specify this as like you know most loving couples. Not to say all loving couples do desire this; it's something they have to choose at some point in time. Most loving couples desire to have children, and when they are unable to do so, it causes immense grief and strife. And that's not to say that all loving couples that uh, a prerequisite is we need to have children. Some choose not to. I don't really particularly understand why all the time, but that's where they're on in their life. But for most loving couples, that's a desire. That's something that they truly wish to have is a child to call their own. But God may choose to allow them to become parents or to encourage them to adopt, or he may never allow a a child to be given to them at all. Like his reasons for doing so are his own and we should trust him. I know that's easy to say, but no it's also true. Isaac recognized this fact and prayed to God for his intervention. I mean had this not happened would Isaac have had the same resolve to commune with God as he did if God had given him a child immediately in the first year of marriage? would this have been something he'd have been seeking after more relationship with God if he got what he wanted? same thing with Abraham would that have happened? I mean my guess would be no. I mean since we see how it's handled here that doesn't mean that a couple who is unable to conceive means that God hates them or despises them, could just mean that that's not his plan. Or maybe it is eventually. I don't know. I'm not in charge of the bookkeeping. But I do know that regardless of the situations we're put in, we need to recognize who he is and how faithful he is to us, even when we don't get what we want. But through this, through these honest, earnest prayers, Isaac and Rebecca are able to have children. And not only are they blessed with a pregnancy, but with twins, who, which is, you know, double what they wanted. And, it, it, and these twins, in the midst of their growth in the womb, are at odds with one another, struggling for their dominance over the other. And this is going to be a huge part of Jacob and Esau's story for the rest of their lives. Uh, the two of them are going to constantly quarrel and attempt to one-up the other. And like, look, like uh, speaking as a sibling, sibling rivalries are natural things and nothing to be too concerned about within reason. Like, it's going to happen. You have people competing in that scenario. Like, for instance, uh, my sister and I can be the best of friends or the worst of enemies in the exact same conversation, <laughs> and I am not being joking about that. I am, <laughs> that is a that is a literal truth. We can start off a conversation despising one another, and at the very end of it, we're all good. Or the reverse could happen, or maybe it happens somewhere in the middle, or maybe we're just you know uh, just looking at one another at the end, and we're just kind of lukewarm. It it can happen. It's just who we are as people. We can be both great friends, or worst enemies. It's just who we are. But at the end of the day, like despite what we've said to each other, despite what we've done to one another, I believe fully that we love each other as I do my other siblings. I, I don't—I probably i have spoken about all of them at some point, in, I'm sure, in this show. But uh, I'm the oldest of four, uh, two boys, two girls. And I do love my siblings a lot. Like, and going back to the whole sibling rivalry thing, like, th- there is a perfectly natural competition that exists between siblings for attention and acceptance from their parents, from their peers, from everyone else that has differences between ages, there's differences between, you know, the different sexes, stuff like that. But, As we'll see more in Genesis, Jacob and Esau will take things to the extreme, but providentially enough, not nearly as bad as what happened with Cain and Abel. There have been times in my heart when I've been angry at my siblings, and I have wanted in in the heat of the passion, like I wanted them dead and gone, but then I would have to repent of that later on. It's like, no, I don't actually mean that, like I would be the lesser if they were gone. So we never ended up in a Cain and Abel situation, thank God. And I don't intend of that ever happening. But it's going to happen between siblings. You get into fights. You think that you should get more attention than someone else, or you think you should be praised more than someone else. It's just how siblings work. And Jacob and Esau are going to be perfect definitions of this. And not only that, but much like their progenitors, their creators, both Israel and Edom will maintain this rivalry hundreds of years from now with God prophesying in a dual sense here and that in a kind of what is noted as a near and far prophecy, this, like I said, there's another more hoity-toity term for I like near and far, um, that it's going to happen here immediately, but it's also going to happen later on through their descendants in Edom and Israel that they're going to fight. And one day Esau in the near present is going to serve Jacob and Edom in the far the further future is going to serve Israel and both come true in scripture. As we see as time goes on now, going back to natural birth, Esau as prophesied is born first with Jacob clinging onto his heel, still battling with his brother, even while they are both leaving their mother's womb. While I was doing my research for this, I, I, found a little um, Jewish legend factoid I'd never seen before. I don't put any stock in it. I just think it's fascinating, is uh, one of the things that in folklore, uh, some Jewish writers have said, well, the reason they would always quarrel is whenever Rebecca would pass by an idol uh, in Canaan on the street or what have you, uh, Esau would get excited. And that's when Jacob would fight him. And whenever, you know, they would pass by an altar that Abraham or Isaac had made to God, that's when Jacob would get incited and Esau would get angry. So I don't think that literally happened. I think it's kind of an illustration uh, that some Jewish commentators have used to describe this. But I just wanted to throw that in there. It's a little like a, a little extra stuff I thought was fascinating. Now, going back to the boys, Esau, like I said earlier, means hairy uh it's barely <laughs> it was just that harry coming out like they just had to call him that and he would maintain that for the rest of his life while jacob means he takes by the heel we'll go to another uh well actually right now we'll do that in the original hebrew uh the word for heel uh akeb also carries the derogatory connotation of deceiver befitting jacob's crafty nature. And even now in our more modern connotations, we have you – know, if you call someone a heel, that means, oh, they're a cad. They're just someone you can't really trust that much or uh, – I know I'm not a wrestler but that uh, – a wrestling fan. But there's that whole idea of a, a, a face and a heel. A face is like the – the good person, the one you want to cheer for, for being the good guy. But the heel is like the guy's going to stab you in the back. And, you know, if you're that kind of person, you cheer for them. But once I don't really understand wrestling all that much. But I do notice where the terms are in the modern era that we use them. So even back then, they kind of had that same connotation. And it comes from Jacob grabbing onto his brother's heel, wanting to be the first more than likely to be born in that sense. But – in order for the prophecy to be fulfilled, Jacob has to be second. And as we get, as they grow up in life, I mean, we kind of see that Esau pretty much sounds like your classical man's man. And once again, there's nothing inherently wrong with this. It's just, that's who he is. Like he's, he hunts, he's strong and he's the favorite of his father. Like he's a little impetuous too much for his own good. Doesn't always think through his decision making. Like, you know, you typical. If you imagine that stereotypical idea of what a man is supposed to look like, Esau's probably your guy there. Now, Jacob, on the other hand, would be a little calmer, uh, more intelligent, and crafty, and was a favorite of his mother. So uh, it's mentioned he's a little better with his hands, like he he met, uh, helps patch up the tents and stuff like that. So there's that. Now, despite what most parents don't want to do, it is inevitable that they will, whether they recognize it consciously or not, that they will favor one child over the other. There are plenty of reasons for why this could happen, and some people may get a little upset to think that this could happen, like, how could you not love all your children equally? It's like, well, that's a lot easier said than done, like, I've never been a parent, but I've watched other people be parents. I've watched my parents be parents. Like it it happens. It's a thing. It, It doesn't inherently mean that the parent loves one child over the other more, but rather that they enjoy being around their favorite more while also still loving their children as equally as possible. Now, both of my parents, I'm the favorite. Not only can I say that because it's true. But because this is my podcast and my siblings don't have podcasts and I can say whatever I want. <laughs> but but to be serious on this idea is like my father, as crafty as he is, as uh, manipulative is the wrong word. Uh, it, it carries a negative connotation. I mean, it's more like a, a, a scheming, uh, crafty, smart kind of way. He has managed to convince all of us that we are his favorite child and this is a phenomenon that people don't believe until it happens in front of them. Like uh, this, I remember one time we were eating dinner with uh, uh, my dad as a basketball coach. I was with some of the other coaches there, and one of the coaches asked, uh, hey, Coach Ashley, which one of your kids is your favorite? Like, Which uh, terrible question to ask at dinner, but you know what? <laughs> He's the kind of guy who would ask that. And dad looked at all of us, and he said, what do you guys think? And I said, well, I'm the favorite. And my brother said, well, I'm the favorite. And my younger sister said, she is the favorite. And my uh, the oldest, younger than me, sister was not there. So my dad called her up, uh, put her on speaker and asked her, hey, who's my favorite child? And she said, well, me, of course. <laughs> so all four of us, he has connived away for us to think that we are the favorite. Like, he's a master strategist that way. Now, my mother, on the other hand, uh, we all agree as siblings that I'm the favorite <laughs> and once again it's not because she hates my other siblings or they don't there's not as much worth in them it's just uh, as we siblings who come together and maybe we're all wrong but it feels to all of us that we've collectively agreed I'm probably her favorite so I'm not saying that just to you know boost my own ego or to say like man I'm really the perfect child because I definitely wasn't It's say like it happens if you become parents You become a parent, you have multiple children, chances are you're going to favor one over the other. It doesn't mean you don't love them. It doesn't mean Jacob didn't love, excuse me, Isaac didn't love Jacob and Rebecca didn't love Esau. It just means they preferred the company of the other one a little more. You know, it happens, especially when you're doing activities that you like with one another. Like, No other sibling is going to go with my dad to Charlotte Comic Con, a hero con. Other than me, maybe my brother would, but my sisters aren't going to do that. Also, my uh, the oldest of my two sisters and my brother are more li- often more blah, more likely than often going to be the ones. If Dad's going to do something sporty, they're going to go out with him. I'm not going to do that. My other sister is going to do that more than likely. Now, but it comes to watching the games, yeah, we'll all be there. It just happens. So keep that in mind. Let's not try to be too harsh on them as time goes on. It's like, yeah, sure. That Sometimes, and rightly so, people do get upset when a parent shows too much favor to another child when there's, it's too obvious that there is a divide. That's something that does need to be spoken out against. And it's something that's going to happen with Isaac and Rebecca as time goes on in other chapters when we get to them. But also remember, they're just people. They're capable of making mistakes. They're capable of being human, you know, because they are. So just remember that as we go into verses 29 through 34. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom kind of sounds like the Hebrew word uh, that means red. Jacob said, sell me your right now. Esau said, I am about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What we see here is typical sibling interactions, number one. But number two, Esau proving himself unworthy of the promise offered to the descendants of Abraham by how he treats his birthright. If Isaac and Rebekah have been doing their jobs, they've been explaining to their children why it is so important that they have been born, why it is so important that they stay in the land of Canaan, that they look after each other because of what God has promised them. A mighty nation is going to grow out of this line. It should have come legally through man's perspective through Esau. But instead, he gives it up because judging by Esau's character, and let's say he's a terrible, awful person who has never done a good thing in his life. But Esau is also kind of the person who, it strikes me, doesn't really have that greater relationship with God. Maybe he does along the way, but I'm not seeing it. In fact, Scripture more than likely says the exact opposite as time goes on. And that's not me doing a pulling a lot again. This is you know, the whole Malachi, you know, I hated Esau, but not Jacob. One was favored over the other. God's plans were for Jacob to be the one to receive his blessings. But Esau proved he was unworthy of that, not because God manipulated him and Esau had no control over his life, but because of who Esau was, who rejected what God had in store for him, who, wanting to be his own man, wanting to do his own thing. And if we look here, like a birthright, uh, it's something that we don't... Not, we we. In modern society, no, you know, wills and, you know, uh, uh, children are supposed to receive, you know, funds, whatever's left over after the burial and the selling of the house and stuff like that. So we kind of get that. But back in the day, this was way more serious than it is now because it's kind of the thing you just kind of had to trust was going to happen. It's kind of the thing that was expected to happen if you didn't do this. It's kind of the same thing with hospitality. You were someone untrustworthy. You were someone who people would despise for not doing something that is just that culturally expected of you. Esau should have this birthright. It's immensely sacred tradition and heavily coveted by those who didn't have access to it. So, of course, Jacob wanted it. Who doesn't want to be the one to get the most out of an inheritance? Duh. It doesn't make what he does right, but we understand his motivation, and we go scratching our heads, Esau, why would you ever give that up? Because you're impetuous and stupid, and you can't think beyond what just happened a minute ago. So by right of being born first, Esau was supposed to receive the bulk, if not all, which was typically the case, of his father's possessions when Isaac died, but he cares nothing about the future, and he's kind of this, I'm living in the moment kind of guy. And he pays the price for it. Like this impetuousness was something that Jacob most definitely would, uh, will, and did take advantage of time and time again. And eventually it leads to further strife between the two brothers that never would have existed had Jacob not coveted the birthright and Esau not been so flippant about it. Now it is a good thing that Jacob does get the birthright, but how he got it legally through human means. Not the best way of going about it. God still honors it because God's intent was always to use Jacob, but his conniving ways are going to catch up to him eventually and cause him strife that never would have happened if he hadn't have been a little brat. (laughs) I mean, there's really no other way to put it. Like both brothers do not come out of this looking like a moral paragons here. Now, one clearly looks wiser than the other, but that doesn't mean that they're uh, morally better than one another here. And uh, close to that, like in a similar sense, we who are in Christ have a birthright that no one else can obtain. And, I mean, pretty much the world is jealous of with of this without realizing why they feel this way towards us because we have a special relationship with God that cannot be obtained through work or religious devotion or what have you. But instead, it is obtained through faith and love. God offers through love. We accept by faith. We become his. We are now part of that birthright. So, let us who have accepted this birthright show gratitude for what we have received that we do not deserve And show this to the world that desperately needs it. It is a good thing to be under that birthright. It is not a good thing to be flippant with it or to say, well, uh, I'm hungry right now, God. So I'm going to sell my soul for whatever. Uh, This stew that I'm going to forget about, you know, when dinner time comes around and I'm going to be hungry again. That's literally how Esau handled, handled that same scenario. We should do better. It's something we can never give up if we're his, but we kind of treat it like we do sometimes, like it's possible. Like, well, I'm going to go back into my old life and do what I was doing before I came to Christ. And we deal with the repercussions of it. And I say that as someone who has to struggle with that daily. I wish I could say, oh, you know, every week or so, maybe I struggle with It's Like, uh, I'm not that good enough. I'm not that strong enough, That just to be perfectly honest with you. But that's how we do it. That's how we... We wrestle with that concept of we are blessed, but we always don't act like it. So let's be a little better than Esau as we move forward in the chapter 26, and we're going through verses 1 through 11. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife will surely be put to death. Let's start at the beginning here. God, knowing who he's dealing with in Isaac, forbids him to go to Egypt like his father Abraham did, despite knowing that Isaac will fall to sin elsewhere. I mean, you know, perhaps the Pharaoh of this age would not be as understanding as the previous one or or maybe Isaac would have remained in Egypt against God's wishes. It's easy to speculate and say, well, this would definitely happen or this wouldn't happen. At the point being, regardless, God takes this time to explain why he wants Isaac to remain in Canaan and then he takes the time to reaffirm the promises and covenants he made with Abraham that now have transferred and belong to Isaac so that Isaac will understand God's providence in his life and yet Isaac proves to be his father's son and uses the old lie Abraham has used twice before against Abimelech Isaac's self-preservation has like his father, overridden his trust in God and love for his wife, putting both in great jeopardy had God not allowed Abimelech to witness Isaac interacting with Rebekah. Now, uh, the Hebrew verb here used to describe the laughter is sachak, which I like saying sachak because it kind of sounds a little like Klingon. That's fun. Which brings several connotations, uh, one of which be uh, Abimelech took as that Isaac was playfully laughing and caressing his beloved wife, which clued the king in on their true relationship, which thus rightfully angered him at the deception. Now, part of this may be because it's the same Abimelech as chapter 20. Uh, It isn't known whether this is that same Abimelech, or if Abimelech is a hereditary title, like Pharaoh was in Egypt, or perhaps a son named after his father. But either way, it's a stupid play to make where this trick has already been performed once before. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean, oh, well, he should have tried some other trick or he should have done some other lies. Like, no, that's the wrong lesson to take from this. Like, we shouldn't attempt to be tactical with our sin and only pull the same scams around people who've never experienced them before like that's still just as wrong i mean it's smarter i mean from a human perspective that doesn't make it right but to to make this boldly stupid lie and the way that he does is just a thousand times worse because of just how easy it would be for the sin to be uncovered by someone who's experienced with dealing with it like Abimelech would be. Like, even if it's Abimelech's son, you don't think his dad would have said, Hey, there's this guy, Abraham, he's got a son, he tried to pull this trick on me. If you want to be a wise and effective ruler, don't let that happen to you, because I almost got into serious heat because of it. Like I'd rather not that, that not happen to you. That's a that's a smart dad if he does that. Or if it's Abimelech himself, maybe he doesn't recognize that Abraham is Isaac's son yet, but he kind of recognizes the lie, and that's why he has the that's looking down on what's going on here. Or if this is a different Abimelech than before and has no relation to him, maybe he just became king and that's his title as Abimelech. Regardless, it's not a smart play, not only because it is sin, which should be what stops you in the first place, but because it's been done before in that same region of the world. Like, be smart. Just think it through. And Isaac, at this point, doesn't. Uh, So from learning from all of this, uh, Abimelech warns his people against messing with Isaac, knowing what could happen if they did. Assuming uh, that this is the original son or someone who took the title, surely there is some record left behind. It's like, hey, I took this man's wife, but before anything could happen, God punished us. So let's not do that. Let's not deal with this foreign god over here who doesn't really take it kindly when wives are steal, stolen from their husbands, which a hey, pretty good God. So what does he do? He forbids people from even touching Isaac or Rebecca, because he's that afraid of the consequences. Pretty smart on his end. Now we go from there to twelve through twenty-five. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham's father, which the Philistines had stopped after the uh, the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given him. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there was a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isek, means contention, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that also. So he called his name Sitna, which means enmity over that also. Oh, excuse me. And he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called his name Rehoboth, which means broad places, a room means a lot of space. Saying for now, the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Now we see much like his father. Despite his sin, God continued to bless Isaac In accordance to his covenant with Abraham. Now, don't get this wrong. Isaac was not being rewarded for sinning, but because God had promised to reward him as part of an unconditional covenant made beforehand. Unconditional means without condition. Therefore, regardless of what Isaac does or Isaac's descendants do, do, God is going to maintain his part of the issue, he's going to maintain his side. No matter the evils that they do, God's sovereign promise to make Isaac and his descendants, Abraham and his descendants, a mighty nation who will prosper the world takes precedence over judgment. It does not mean judgment will not happen, as when we do get into forever from now the history of Israel, it's going to happen time and time again, but not as often as it should, if God were always going to be swiftly just. Now, to us, we who are saved are allowed the same immense mercy and kindness that Israel was granted there. God would be perfectly just to punish us the moment we committed the sin and wait a while before he chose to prosper us again. But because God is loving, merciful, and kind, he blesses us when we least deserve it to remind us of who he really is and why we should repent and come back to him. If you're an period of sin and you're prospering right now, I would caution you immensely. That means God, he's a cooking of something up and it ain't going to be good for you. It's easy to do that in the midst of sin and go, well, God must say whatever I'm doing is right. When we know the opposite is in fact true, but God is still who he is. God is still loving that he allows us to prosper even when we don't deserve it, especially when we don't deserve it. And in fact, when it comes to Isaac, his prosperity is noted by the Philistines, and this causes fear to break out among them as they have been forbidden to harm him and his possessions. But apparently not their wills, so maybe there was some kind of loophole there we're not aware of, which are filled in a passive-aggressive way to encourage him to leave. Or it's, maybe it was done even before Isaac came that way, and they just did after Abraham left. Now, their jealousy over his prosperity caused them to hound him until they could benefit from it as well. But God protected Isaac wherever he went, allowing him to create wells and draw water from it that would be invaluable to him, both as the human body needs to live, because we can't live without water, but also for the sake of his livestock as well. He was dependent on them. He needed to be able to have fresh water around so they could drink of it and prosper and continue to give him everything he needed from them. Now, Isaac, despite being in the right in this scenario, who is the party who has been unjustly attacked... Does not seek conflict with his Philistine neighbors and instead departs, trusting that God would provide, which he does until he is finally. Able to rest, 26 to 35, when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and five called a commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm. Just so we have not touched you and have done to you nothing— But good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So we made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning, they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba, which is kind of Hebrew for oath. Uh, Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. As we've mentioned before, even the lost can sometimes see the gift that God offers us and His to His own, and acknowledge it in their continued defiance to repent. Most will grow angry; not all, but most, in my experience, will, and and may even grow bitter over all this, um, for not receiving the same benefits, but others like Abimelech here may seek to reconcile differences and work together with us, despite still not believing. Like a a very good way to be terrible to other people is to make it a rule for your church that we never work with the lost unless they agree to come to church or become believers or what have you. Like if I were them, that would upset me immensely. I'm only a commodity to you. I'm only somebody you can convert. You don't love me as a person. Why would I ever deal with you again? That's a terrible way to go about things. Like, these are human beings in desperate need of God. We should still encourage them to come to church and uh, seek after God, but we should also recognize that we are not the ultimate arbiters of how they come or don't come to faith. Abimelech was willing to work with someone far different than himself. Are you and I willing to do the same? Then we get the good old Esau here. Esau, despite growing with uh, growing up with godly parents, seeks after his own interests and marries Canaanite women more than likely over his parents protests now judging from how we see esau here uh, more than likely from what we've seen of him he's the kind of person when he sees a woman he go, he loves he lusts after he's going to take her make her his wife just as impetuously as he's made every other decision in his life and this causes his parents immense grief and that that the word bitter there is kind of, kind of a hebrew meaning bitterness of spirit like a spiritual anguish that is caused from the actions made by another person that you can't control that like you like why can why are you doing this you're hurting yourself and now you're hurting me as a result of that and this is kind of what's happening here. it sounds like these wives were not good people they were not loving people and they caused Isaac and Rebecca a lot of issues and didn't strengthen the relationship they had with Esau now We don't know because we don't have a lot in the text here to suggest either way, you know, if Isaac and Rebecca had suggested other options or if Esau just kind of showed up one day, married to two women or showed up married to one and then married to another. But either way, it continued to prove that Esau was unworthy of the birthright that he had callously thrown away. And with that, sorry for the abrupt ending. I had more to say, but... (laughs) I, I do have that other recording to get to. So thank you all for understanding. Thank you all for your continued help uh, in prayer and all that. I really do appreciate it. Please get a chance to leave a five-star review in your podcasting platform of choice. Just helps boost us in the ratings there and helps us immensely to find other people. If you're interested in my own fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwriterskilled.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anasal Ministries podcasting network. You can contact me at letnothingmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Moe for the editing that he does and for the a lot of editing you have to do for this one. My fault again, my bad. And for the music he has for the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you. Hey guys, are you interested in podcasting, but don't know where to go? Well, check out Zencaster.com and go ahead and make an account there and use special promo code, let nothing move you all caps. That way you can get 30% off of your next deal to go ahead and set things up so you can figure out how to edit stuff using Zencaster.com to host your stuff, to get things done there. So check out Zencaster.com, use special promo code, let nothing move you. All right. See ya.